Good evening. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Titus as we continue our study in this short book in the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul, Titus. We're looking at chapter 2 today. And we'll be bouncing around looking at a lot of other verses, so keep your fingers nimble, ready to move along as we do that. Titus chapter 2. And I've entitled the study tonight, uh, Sound Doctrine and Godly Living. Sound Doctrine and Godly Living. <clears throat> and uh, I think I'll just dispense from reading through the whole text. It's just 15 verses. We'll go through a little at a time, so we won't do that this, this evening. Um, Paul introduced this epistle, you might recall, uh, to Titus. Uh, the, and he reminded Titus and us of the hope of eternal life, which God has promised to his people. Great beginning, great reminder. We all need to do that. I think too often we get caught up in today, in our life, and what's happening in our lives, and we don't think eternally, but it's something we should be reminded of. You know, when you're, especially when you're facing trials and difficulties and challenges in life, it's good to stop and reflect upon what our eternal hope is, what, what takes us beyond this life, what's beyond these years we live, and to draw comfort from that and encouragement. Uh, because there are obviously frustrating times and difficult circumstances that come upon us. But if we, if we pause and, and think about that, what we have in Christ, it certainly will encourage us to go forward. Uh, Paul also challenged Titus to fulfill the responsibilities that Paul left him with there in Crete. And the key words there uh, was to set in order the things that are lacking. Now, I was thinking about this as I was preparing this message, set in order the things that are lacking. That's Paul's telling um, Titus to do this, of course, regarding the churches there, but that speaks to us, you know, as believers. Uh, when we are redeemed by God's grace, first thing we should probably do is set in order the things that are lacking in our life, whether it be the study of God's word, prayer, fellowship with the saints. We need to make sure we're, we're prioritizing our Christian life, setting aside the sins of the past, set aside the bad habits, the, the things that distract us from worshiping and serving God. So we need, on a daily basis, really, as you get up and get going, set in order the things that are lacking. Set in order your life. Make sure you're in the right um, plan and, and steps. And Paul's primary task for, for Titus was to appoint elders, of course, with an emphasis, though, on men with godly character in every city there where a church had been established. And this was important, as we pointed out, due to the Cretan culture which had a pretty sad reputation for lying and immorality. In fact, to be called a Cretan or Cretanism meant you were a liar, basically. So uh, you, want to, you want to tell somebody that's a liar, hey, Cretan, you know, that would be a, not a nice thing to say. But that was the primary concern that Paul had. Because of the culture, it wasn't just a matter of appointing elders, but you had to make sure that they weren't caught up in that culture, or at least maybe having that culture hanging on to them. We need to shed that culture and make sure they were godly men. Uh, so as a result, Paul exhorts Titus to ensure that both he and these elders sharply rebuke those in the church that manifested this deceitful lifestyle, as well as to warn against Judaizers who were constantly lurking around trying to draw Christians back into Judaism. So that was one of the warnings he gave. And it's important to note, even as I said this, setting in order the things that are lacking, that our God is a God of order. He created the world in an orderly manner, and not in a chaotic one like the evolutionists like to teach. And even our salvation has an order to it. God doesn't do things arbitrarily. When you think of our salvation, we don't believe first and then repent. We're not sanctified and then justified. Uh, and our order of salutus back there gives a order in which God does work in our lives. 
So God is a God of order, and we need to make sure our lives should not be chaotic or disorderly, but ordered by godly wisdom after the word of God. So there's an orderliness to our life. We're constantly exhorted by Paul to pursue godliness and to adhere to sound doctrine, not live uh, any way we please, that grace may abound, as he warns in Romans chapter 3, verse 8. You know, I suspect, too, that eternity and heaven itself will have some sort of order to it, rather than unorganized bliss, you know, everybody's floating around, having a good time, chasing angels, whatever. No, there'll be an order to it. There'll be an order. In fact, we see that in Revelation of the worship that's taking place, particularly amongst the, uh, the angels and uh, the elders there. So God's a God in order, and we need to, to see that in not just a practical way, you know, uh, in our lives, but in a godly way, in a spiritual way. And that's what studying passages like this will hopefully help us to do. <clears throat> so in chapter 2, we're going to find Paul exhorting Titus to preach both sound doctrine and godly living, that God's people might live lives that honor God and that are zealous for good works. So let's look initially at the first section of this, which we'll look at kind of the first 10 verses, but we're going to break it down a little at a time. So the first section I'd like to look at is the exhortation. He gives an exhortation and he gives an example. So he begins this chapter with a challenge to Titus, which is in contrast to the false teachers he just spoke about at the end of chapter 1. Let's read the last verse of chapter 1, which is verse 16. He's speaking of these false teachers. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being an abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. And then he goes into chapter 2, or what we call chapter 2, is just part of the letter. But as for you, there's the key four words, but as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Stop right there. But as for you, here's what these guys are doing, here's what you should be doing. Speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Others may wander from the truth. Others may profess to know God, but it but in works they deny him. But as for you, beloved, as for you and me and Titus, let us forsake error, let us flee from impurity, and let us speak and believe and live out the things which are proper for sound doctrine. You see the pattern there? We've got to step back, take a look at where we were, what we once did, and we have to say, wait a minute, I can't do that anymore. Let's, as for us, let's do those things which are honoring to God and in accordance with his word, that's accordance with sound doctrine. The answer for a world and a society, even the church today mired in deception and the commandments of men, is the word of truth from the God of truth. So we need to order our lives according to this. We need to order our church according to this. And we need to proclaim that word of truth from the God of truth to change other people's lives as well. You might recall, of course, Jesus' familiar words in John 8.32, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Not free to do what you want, but free from the destructive lies of Satan and sin to pursue holiness in the fear of the Lord. So that's what God sets us free from. Uh, we have a liberty now to live according to God, whereas before we were, we were caught up or entangled, you might say, by our sinfulness and by the snares of Satan, and we couldn't do what we freely can do now because we are in Christ. So Paul instructs Titus to teach these things that are proper for sound doctrine to all the members of God's family within the church, to old, to young, to men, to women, to servants as well. There's no class or no gender, and of course there's only two genders we know, within the church uh, that make up the body of Christ that should not hear and should not heed the doctrines according to godliness. So 
he begins with elderly men, which is probably appropriate because they would be the men who would be leading the church and the community and their families. Proverbs 16.31 says, The hoary head is a crown of glory if, and there's the key word, it's a crown of glory if it be found in the way of righteousness. Oh, that America would have more godly patriarchs, as I think was just prayed, that led their families in righteousness. That's what we need, leading families in righteousness. Paul then mentions here, as you'll see in the text, we'll read in just a moment, six characteristics, okay, which should be the fruit of these older men heeding the things that become sound doctrine. So let's read verse 2, and we'll see those six things. <clears throat> that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, and in patience. Stopping right there. The first is sober, a word that can either mean free from the influence of wine or actually more likely in the Greek, vigilant. Uh, it is mentioned as one of the characteristics or qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3.2. It's used in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 to denote vigilance. Here's the quote. But the end of all things is at hand. Be you therefore, and usually in your text you'll see the word sober, but actually the word vigilant should be there because the rest of the verse says, and watch unto prayer. In other words, be on guard, be vigilant, be careful, and watch unto prayer. That's the key of what that word is meaning. Also, it's used similarly in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 6 where it says, Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober, or let us be vigilant, okay? Be on guard. As you can picture a sentry uh, at some sort of uh, location or a security guard at a prison, be on guard, okay? Be vigilant. Don't fall asleep. Don't get distracted. Don't, you know, get yourself away from your responsibilities, but be vigilant to keep yourself on the task that's been given to you. Be on guard against those temptations that come at you. And obviously Satan will throw wherever he can to keep you from doing what you're supposed to do. So these elderly men, when grounded in sound doctrine, should be vigilant to maintain the purity of that doctrine against the errors of false teachers. That, and that's what Paul's concerned about here. The second fruit of sound doctrine in the older men is to be grave, or in other translations you might have the words venerable or reverent or even honorable. In other words, men who have been impacted by sound doctrine will not be silly, but composed. Uh, they'll be dignified and respectable in their conduct. Instead of playing the fool, they will live their lives in dignity and wisdom, redeeming their time, which is what Paul admonishes us to do in Ephesians chapter 5. And verse 16, we're just going to go through these fruits real quick here. So the third, third fruit is that of being temperate. Temperate. The Greek word here is sophron, which actually means to be of sound mind, curbing one's desires and impulses, and being self-controlled. Okay, that's what it means to be temperate. You're curbing your desires. You're being self-controlled. First uh, Corinthians chapter nine, and verse 25. It says this, and every man that strives for the mastery is temperate, there's that word, in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. So anyone who's uh, striving for a mastery in, in something, uh, whatever it might be, sports or business, whatever, they're going to be seeking their best to be of sound mind, of, of control, self-controlled, and doing all things in good order, so they might be successful, but we do it to obtain an incorruptible crown. We do it for the glory of God. A man who's living under the principles of God's word is not driven by passions 
or impulses, but is self-controlled and composed in this conduct. That's the way we should be. We should be different. Right now, our world is in chaos. I mean, when you look around our society, it's like nuts you know, out there with people, how they're conducting themselves, uh, showing total disrespect for their fellow citizens, uh, for government in all forms. Well, we need to be different. We need to stand out as people of principle, people, people who stand for truth, and who know how to conduct ourselves in a godly way. Even when there's people going crazy around us, we need to be different in that sense. Um, <clears throat> Psalm 119, uh, verses 34 through 36 says this, Give me understanding, and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. These are the thoughts and words of a temperate man whose heart has been guided by sound doctrine. So here's the key. If your heart's guided by sound doctrine, then you can be temperate. You can be self-controlled. You can be discerning. You can do those things. If you're guided by false doctrine, obviously you're going to go off the, off the wheels, off the rails, and go into different directions. But if you're guided by sound doctrine, then you can be a temperate person whose heart has been guided by that. The next fruit here in the list, as you'll notice, is the fruit of sound doctrine should bring forth men who are sound in faith. Okay, sound in faith. Matthew Henry said this, sincere and steadfast, constantly adhering to the truth of the gospel, not found of I'm sorry, not fond of novelties, nor ready to run into corrupt opinions or parties. Notice there's a sequence sequence to things here, and these aged men should be sound in. They're to be sound in faith, in love, and in patience. All three of those. Their faith must be neither lukewarm nor mixed with error, as he told Titus back in chapter 1, verse 14. Their love must be more than just sentimentalism, and it should be a warm and fervent love, not waxing cold, not off and on. It should be a consistent love, as Jesus speaks to us in Matthew 24 and verse 12. And lastly, their patience or endurance must be steadfast, not faint-hearted, nor should it degenerate into pride or obstinacy. It needs to be an enduring patience, a patience that accepts things and understands that God's in control, God's sovereign. 1 Timothy 1.5, now the end of the commandment is love out of a pure heart, out of a good conscience, and of a faith unfeigned. Okay, that's what the end of the commandment is. That's what we should be doing. We should be living out a love that is from a pure heart, a good conscience, and faith unfeigned or unfading. The apostle then moves on now to an appropriate character qualities that sound doctoral teaching should produce in the older women and subsequently the influence that they should have on the younger women. So let's read verses 3 through 5 here in our text. Verse 3, the older women likewise that they should be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. <clears throat> In the same way as older men, okay? He's, he's not distinguishing. He said the older women should bring forth godly fruit under the teaching of sound doctrine, okay? There's, there's not a distinction here in that sense. We, we all should be gaining this wisdom and knowledge and, and living a life that is according to sound doctrine. In an overall sense, the older women are to be reverent in behavior, he's saying here. Their inward holiness should be manifest in their outward 
behavior. Let's turn to 1 Peter with me, if you please. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. And we'll read verses 3 and 4. Uh, in this context, Peter is speaking to wives and husbands. In this particular text here in verse 3, uh, speaking to the, the wives. 1 Peter 3, 3. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, the former times, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. So that's the pattern for women here. And it's obviously not exactly the same as men, but very close, because we're still looking at living according to sound doctrine. So ladies, ask yourself this question. Is your behavior reflecting a life of holiness and godliness within? Is your outward life reflecting that inward life? If you are to teach younger women, obviously, you must set an example in word and in deed. Uh, let your life be a living out of the words of Francis Riverly Havergill's beautiful poem we just sang in Take My Life and Let It Be. Mrs. Havergill, who is known, by the way, as the consecration poet of America and of England, actually, didn't just write poems uh, about godly, consecrated living. She lived them out. She literally lived them out. It was said of her that she always lived her words before she wrote them. One observer summed up her life this way. Her life was one of constant and complete commitment to God. Her many talents, an accomplished pianist and vocalist, proficient in seven languages, a keen mind, which she used uh, to memorize the entire New Testament, Psalms, Isaiah, and all the minor prophets. This lady was not dumb. <laughs> she was pretty smart. Let me read that again. She memorized the New Testament, Psalms, Isaiah, the minor prophets, and they were all that she did was dedicated to serving God and to others. So all Christian women, and men, let's face it, should do well to imitate that kind of lifestyle. And though she suffered from poor health and only lived to be 43 years old, she lived them all for the glory of God. So when you think of that hymn, think of her, and let us all concentrate our lives on living for God's glory alone. Same words, take my life for it and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. You don't have to memorize uh, seven, seven portions of the Bible or seven languages, but you can certainly spend time in the word and be used of God in that way. So think of, there's a lot of great hymns written by Francis. I recommend if you had a chance to do so, look it up in the hymn book, and usually most hymn books will have several of her hymns, but that's one in particular that's obviously a very poignant one. We note here in verse 3 of our text that Paul contrasts older women's reverent behavior with that which they should avoid. In other words, slander and excess of wine drinking, which is probably a particular problem at that time. These two often go together, slander and excess of wine, because those who are given to or who obviously over imbibe in wine generally have loose tongues and are given way to gossip and to slander. These same requirements Paul gave in Timothy to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3 when he described the wives of deacons. So rather, Paul says they are to be what? They are to be teachers of good things. Okay? Literally, it means a teacher of what is right. Okay? A teacher of what is right. And older women can have a positive godly influence, obviously, on younger women by teaching them to do what is right rather than what is popular or trendy. Okay? See the importance of that difference? What's right rather than what's popular or trendy. And then he goes on in verses 4 and 5 to tell them exactly what character qualities they should teach by example 
to the young women. Let's reread those two verses, verses 4 and 5, just to get a, a list of what he's telling them to do. They, they admonish the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. First, they are admonished to be sober. You say, wait, where is that sober? Well, actually, some translation may not have that word, but there is actually a Greek word in there, and it's, it's the word sober. It's different from the one translated sober for older men. Uh, this one is the same as that was translated for temperate for older men. As we said, it means to be of sound mind and to control one's desires. One of the most important lessons older women can teach younger ones is not to be driven by passions and impulses, but to be by wise counsel and sound reason to live their lives for God's glory. Paul then exhorts them to admonish the younger women to give their attention to their families, to love their husband and love their children. That should be obvious, but not always the case. We need to have that reminder to encourage older women encouraging the younger women to be faithful and loving to their families. Truly, no greater joy and responsibility should occupy a young woman's time than to love her husband and her children. Paul next lists, here we go, six more godly characteristics that the older women should teach to the younger. First is a variation of the word sober in verse 4. Again, it primarily means to be self-controlled, careful, or discreet in their context, in their conduct. Next, we use, he uses the Greek word hagnos, which properly means clean or innocent, but it also can be uh, used for the word modest. That's the word chaste there you see in some of your translation. But it's a Greek word meaning that we are clean, morally clean, innocent, or modest. It speaks of being pure in a true moral sense, as well as conducting ourselves in a way that is pure from carnality. So it's an overall lifestyle. It's not just one thing. It's, it's a constant pursuing of a moral purity. Along with that, he instructs them to be keepers at home, literally a good housekeeper. Um, Proverbs, that would be the woman of Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 31 is this type of woman, a, a keeper at home, one who is a blessing to her household and to her husband and children. One who looks to the affairs of her household rather than wandering about being a busybody. And Paul speaks to that in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 13 as well. Satan deceived Eve, and he's deceiving women today into abandoning their role of being contented keepers at home into career women that leave their family and go off and do a career for themselves. Paul continues this list with the simple yet profound term, good. Be good, he says there in verse 4, verse 5. Be good, which here in the Greek is agathos, which can mean useful, agreeable, of good constitution. So, ladies, let your works reveal your doctrine and your love for God and your desire to honor him. Lastly, he admonishes the older women to teach the younger to be obedient to their own husbands. And this follows, of course, his teaching in Ephesians chapter 5, Colossians chapter 3, and 1 Peter chapter 3 on the role of husbands and wives. It's, he's just reinforcing that here. Loving their husbands will not suffice if it's not done with a heart that is obedient to their leadership. Likewise, cold-hearted obedience is not supportive to a loving home life either. All these things are to be followed, Paul says, at the end of verse 5, that what? That the word of God be not blasphemed. That's the key. We're to live our lives as men and women, that the word of God would not be blasphemed. The people look at us as Christians saying, they're not making any difference. They're not different from me. They're doing the same things I'm doing. No, we're to be distinctive, following sound doctrine. We're to be different so that people look at us and say, 
They're different. Why are they different? Well, they're honoring God. They're living their lives to please God, not to please themselves. So that's the key. We need to keep that in mind. It's been a very potent argument by him. And we think of it uh, in terms of throughout his pastoral epistles, he's jealously guarded the name of God and the word of God. And so we should too. We don't want the name of God to be blasphemed by our actions. 1 Corinthians 10.31 comes to mind. Whether you eat, drink, or whatsoever you do, how you live your life, whether you're a man, a woman, a father, a daughter, a son, whatever you are, do it all to the glory of God. Live it in a way that people can see that you're glorifying God. You're not just living your own life. So Paul continues his exhortation to various ages here and groups in the body of Christ with a brief word to young men, although he uses it to lead into a lengthy challenge to Titus himself, who probably is a young man. We don't know for sure. Let's read verses 6 through 8 of our text to see what he says to the young men and to Titus. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing to say of you. Though it's brief, verse 6 here contains the phrase, likewise exhort, implying that the young men are equally responsible as the older to pursue these godly characteristics that Paul has listed here for the older men. In fact, he uses the Greek word that means to be of a sound mind. So young people aren't to be, it's just not the older ones who are of a sound mind, who are wise, but the young men are to be of a sound mind as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. Don't be foolish, he's saying to young men. Be wise in your conduct. Don't just say, well, the older guys, they can be wise, but I can have fun. No, we're all to be wise. Be aware that God will hold you accountable for your actions, he's saying. And your youthfulness will not be an excuse. It shouldn't be an excuse for us. Even if we are young in the faith and young in age, whatever it might be, we shouldn't use any circumstances in our life as an excuse for not pursuing godliness. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. And we'll see what... Solomon said about this. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, speaking to young people, and verse 9, very strong warning here. Ecclesiastes 11, 9, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart, in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these, God will bring you into judgment. And in a sense, he's saying, okay, go ahead, live your life, you know, do what you want to do, but God's going to hold you accountable for that. Look over at chapter 12 and verse 1. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days come and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. Don't be foolish in thinking that you can get away with it because you're young. Rather, God's going to hold you accountable and he is going to bring up the fruit of that in your life if you ignore him and his ways and sound doctrine. Going back to our text in verse 7, Paul addresses himself directly to Titus and admonishes him in particular to be an example or a pattern for the young men. Uh, this is similar to the charge he gave to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12. So I believe it would be appropriate to apply these admonitions of Paul for Titus to all men in leadership. First, he exhorts them to be a pattern of good works. A pattern of good works. The Greek word here is lupos, which means a die or a stamp, like a model uh, of something or an example. So Paul wanted Titus to set a standard for others to follow. And we men, especially those of us who are in positions of authority, must live our lives in a way that sets a good example for all that are in the faith. 
We're not to set ourselves up on a pedestal, but in humility, we are to seek to be faithful imitators of Christ, that as people look at us, they will also become imitators of Christ. And that's the key. We don't want people imitating us so much as we want them to be imitators of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 5.3, neither speaking to elders, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And each of us has a role to be an example to those who are under us in the faith or are young believers that they, we might not lead them astray, but rather point them true the truth. Uh, looking at First Peter, I'm sorry, yeah, First Peter chapter. No, make that James uh, two twenty. James two twenty. Faith without works is dead. If we claim to be leaders, we claim to be men of faith, then we need to have works that uh, that demonstrate that to people. So let's pray for grace. We'd appreciate you as members of the congregation to pray for grace for us, uh, the influence and guidance of the Holy Spirit to bring forth works pleasing to God and an example and encouragement to you. Obviously, we face challenges. We just faced a challenge this last week. Things come up that are, in some cases, meant to humble us and make us realize how dependent we are upon the grace of God. So we need your prayers constantly for us as leaders. Even the deacons need your prayers for wisdom in doing what they're supposed to do. Don't just take it for granted that we're doing what we're supposed to do. We need your prayers. We need God to protect us from evil influences. We need God for strength to do what's right. And we need boldness and faithfulness to proclaim his word the way he wants it to be proclaimed to you and whoever else we come in time to it with. Next here in our text, Paul admonishes Titus to be sure that his doctrine as well as his deeds are pure. Good deeds should reflect sound doctrine and sound doctrine should produce good deeds. Okay, let me say that again. Good deeds should reflect sound doctrine, and sound doctrine should produce good deeds on a regular basis. He also says that his doctrine should reflect gravity and sincerity. The Greek word behind these speaks of honesty and genuineness, as well as incorruptibility. We need to make sure we're not you know, being careless with our words or careless with our actions, but we want to be incorruptible. We want to be honest, genuine. We want to be sincere and how we communicate the word of God to people and how we live our lives. In other words, Paul wants Titus to both believe in and to live out doctrine that is unquestionably pure and true to God's word, that he might be an example or pattern to these elders that he's appointing in Crete. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 12 says this, For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world and more abundantly toward you. <clears throat> so we need to have a life, a life as elders, as people in positions that reflect the grace of God in us that might be an inspiration to others. Lastly, in this section, Paul admonishes Titus to not only should he have good works, but his life and his doctrinal teaching should be sound but his everyday speech should be godly. One would be an example to others in public affairs must not damage his example by a private conversation that is ungodly or impure. So you've got to be consistent both in outside life and in inner life. You need to have that consistency. As Paul says here in the latter half of verse 8, he does not want Titus to give his enemies any ammunition by which he can criticize him. Okay? So don't, don't kind of get engaged in conversations uh, private conversations that would end up being spread abroad and ruining your reputation, ruining the testimony you have to people. So be consistent in your conversation and your conduct, both 
in, in public as well as in private. So no one could call into question uh, what you're doing or why you're doing it. In fact, turn with me over to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll see uh, where Paul gives an, or Peter gives an admonition there regarding this. <clears throat> If those who would lead were to stick to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine, which is according to godliness, that's 1 Timothy 6.3, we need not to fear the reproach of the wicked, uh, for they will have nothing to say to us. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether the king is supreme or to governors or to those who are sent for him by the punishment of evildoers and for the praise for those to do good. Verse 15, for this is the will of God, but that by doing good, you may put the silence, the ignorance of foolish men. So our doing good, our conducting ourselves honorably before the Gentiles, before those who are unbelievers, will reflect God's grace in us and will be a testimony to them in which they can't find fault with what we're doing because we're seeking to honor God. In verses 9 and 10 of our text, Paul repeats this exhortation that he gave to Timothy regarding servants being obedient to their masters. Let's go back and read our text, verses 9 and 10 in Titus chapter 2. Exhort bond servants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, in all things. And here's that, that reference. They may adorn the doctrine of God. Whatever your position in life, um, Paul's not stating here anything regarding whether slavery is good or bad, but rather that God's people, no matter what their place in life, are to adorn the doctrine of, our, of God our Savior in all things. That's, that's the standard we should have. No matter who we are or where we are, our goal should be to glorify our God and live in such a way that people may see us uh, see in us Christ as the hope of glory, as we're told in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. People should see a difference in their life. We should be distinctive in that way. Turn with me over to Colossians, if you would. Colossians chapter uh, 3 and verses 22 through 25. Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through 25. And here again, he's speaking, Paul's speaking to bond servants, similarly as he's talking here in Titus. Verse 22, bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it hardly as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of, you, of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But, here's the warning, he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. So Paul's trying to keep a standard here. It doesn't matter where you are if you're a servant. In that time, obviously, there were slaves that had become believers. But he said, live your life in such a way that you don't bring reproach upon the name of God or upon the doctrine of God, but rather you enhance it, you lift it up, that people might see in you Christ and his glory. And that's our challenge, beloved. Be sure that we're living to please God and not men. And yet, pleasing God, you will be a blessing to men, right? If you're pleasing God, you should be a blessing to men. Sometimes, whether they like it or not, <laughs> you will be. Okay, let's look to the last section here of Titus, which is the last five verses. And we'll call this the product of God's grace, which is God's 
godly living. The product of God's grace is godly living. So the last five verses here of the chapter, Paul tells us that it is God's redemptive grace that enables us to live these godly lives. We don't do it on our own strength. We don't have some formula that we follow. It's, it's God's grace working in us that enables us to live these godly lives. So let's just leave, uh, read the last five verses here, beginning at verse 11. <clears throat> For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. <clears throat> so, if we look at the context here, we can see Paul has been instructing Titus concerning all types of men and women. As William Hendrickson said in, in his commentary on this passage, male or female, old or young, rich or poor, all are guilty before God, and from them all God gathers his people. Okay? From out of everyone, wherever they are, whatever their life is, God gathers his people from all of them. How do we know that he's not speaking about all men here in general? Well, in other words, a universal salvation? Well, besides the overall teaching of Scripture, of course, on this subject, as I've said many times before, we must look at the immediate context and the chapter context. Paul is exhorting Titus to teach these things to churches in Crete, to believers. Also, verse 12, as you see, contains the qualifying word, us. He's speaking to us. God's grace that brings salvation has appeared to all kinds of people and teaches those men, us, in other words, believers, that they should live godly lives. He's not addressing this epistle, nor this, his particular words to all men in general, but to those who profess faith in Christ, who are part of these churches, those who have been untouched by the grace of God, and have been touched, I'm sorry, by the grace of God, and brought to repentance and to faith. So that's who he's directing it to. So let's look at what principles Paul's teaching here. God's grace has appeared not that men whom he redeems can go on sinning, but rather that they may pursue godliness. In Luke chapter 1, Zacharias, the priest, upon the birth of his son John, whom we know later becomes John the Baptist, breaks forth into a song to praise his God for the birth of his son. And in that song, he tells God uh, why God has delivered them, uh, Israel, looking forward to the redemptive work of Christ. If you want to flip back with me to uh, Luke chapter 1, and verses 74 and 75, we'll read just a portion of this uh, Benedictus, which is called the prayer or the, the, the speech, you might say, of Zacharias. Verse 74 and 75. To grant that us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. What are we redeemed for? What are we delivered from our enemies for? That we might serve him in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. That's why he saves us. That's why he brings us into his family. That's what Paul's teaching here uh, in, second, in, in Titus chapter 2. Psalm 94 verse 11, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. God will not withhold his blessings from those who walk uprightly in accordance with sound doctrine. The grace of God has appeared, it says. 
The Greek word for appeared is ephenaria, and it means the manifestation or the brightness. His grace has appeared. It refers, of course, to the advent of Christ. He has shone forth in our hearts that we might shine as lights to the world, as Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15. So that's the reason why God redeems us, that we might live lives in holiness and righteousness, that we might shine to the world, that we might show people what God has done. On verse 12, back in our text, Paul tells us that God's grace in Christ has appeared to us not just that we should avoid ungodliness, okay, but that we should deny it. Okay? Not just avoid it, but deny it. The Greek word here is uh, arnaomia, which means to contradict, to reject, to refuse, or deny something. In other words, totally repudiate ungodliness and ruly lust. That's what we're supposed to do. Not kind of avoid them, you know, kind of make sure we don't know. We're to totally reject them, totally deny them, totally throw them out of our life without exception. Turn back to Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 31. Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 31. Just right at the end of chapter 18. God's challenging the house of Israel here. In fact, let me back up to verse 30. You kind of get the context. God's speaking and warning Israel here. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, said the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. And that's the emphasis here that Paul's giving Titus. Turn away from these things. Cast them out. Get rid of those sinful habits. Get rid of those uh, things that drag you down, that tempt you to sin. Don't play with them. Don't kind of try and avoid them as best you can. No, throw them out. Totally reject them. Don't let them be a part of your life. That's the emphasis that Paul's giving here to Timothy, I mean to Titus, to make sure he is not playing with it or not teaching these, these other elders to do the same. Don't play with sin. Cast it from you and give it no occasion to ruin your life and instead bring forth fruits meet for repentance, as we're told in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 8. In another of Paul's epistles, in Romans, he said it this way, in Romans chapter 6, verse 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. That should be our motto. We are not going to serve sin. We're going to be different. And there's other texts in Romans. Uh, let me just give you a few you might want to jot down and look up. Uh, same thoughts, same idea. Romans chapter 6, verse 12. 6, 12. Chapter 8 and verse 13. 8, 13. And chapter 13, verses 12 through 13. Chapter 13, verses 12, 13. The Lord will not love us nor applaud us for it, but that should not matter. For the glory of God, let us by his grace seek daily to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. The stars shine brighter against the blackness of a night sky, and the jewels look more radiant against a black drop of black velvet. That's how we should be. We should stand out. We should be like a star in the sky compared to the blackness. We should be like a jewel on a black piece of velvet that, that shines out, that is different, that is accented that way. So in history, have God's people shown forth more radiantly against the preponderance of evil? Yes, we see that in history, and Scripture uh, testifies to that. Paul now turns his focus here at the end of the chapter to the, from the present age to the one that is to come in verse 13. 
Let me quote a commentator on verse 13. In fact, let me read verse 13 again. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what a commentator said about that. We, aged men, aged women, young women, young men, Titus himself, slaves, etc., should live a Christian life because through the power of God's grace, we are waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. As we live out our lives here on earth in godly fear, we should, like Paul's magnificent soliloquy in Philippians 3, press on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That should be our desire. John Calvin said this about this particular verse, verse 13. From the hope of future immortality, he draws an exhortation. And indeed, if that hope be deeply seated in our mind, it is impossible that we should not lead, should not lead us to devote ourselves wholly to God. Let me read that again. From the hope of future immortality, that's what he's referring to here, he draws an exhortation, and indeed, if that hope be deeply seated in our mind, it is impossible that we, it should not lead us to devote ourselves wholly to God. That is the desire. It is a blessed hope anchored in the promises of a blessed God, the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, as we're told in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 15. Also, excuse me, in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, it says, Which hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters into that which in the veil. You know, when I hear those words, I think of these lines. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's my hope. My hope is in his work. My hope is in his coming. It's not based on any feelings I have. It's based on the, the accurate, actual truth that he died for my sins, he is coming again, and my hope is anchored in what he will do. Paul goes on in verse 14 to both Christ's redemptive work on our behalf and the divine purpose for that work for us. Note here the three things Christ has done for us and what he expects in return. Let me read verse 14 again. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. <clears throat> he gave himself for us. John 10, verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. He did that so that he might redeem us from all of our iniquity. Matthew 1, 21, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. He gave himself for us, for our sins. Not only did he die to save us from the consequences of our sin, he died to purify us, to make us holy before God. Matthew 3, 3, and he shall purify the sons of Levi. God's going to purify us, or is purifying us. Why? Why, why did, would God do that? Well, that they may offer unto the Lord, this is from the same text in, Ma in Malachi, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. He purifies us that we might offer righteous offerings unto him. We might glorify him. Also in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your, purge your conscience from dead works? And why does he purge our conscience from dead works? To serve the living God. That's what Christ has done for us. He, he saves us by his blood to purge our conscience from dead works so that we might serve the living God. He has given himself for us to redeem and purify us, 
Not that we can go on our merry way and do whatever we please, but that we might be unto him a peculiar people, a special, unique people, zealous for good works. Should sound familiar. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2 again. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 9 through 12. Familiar portion of scripture, 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Why? That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And, of course, you can read the other texts there going on that we read earlier. So that's why he redeemed us, that we might glorify him, that we might be different, we might serve the living God. We're chosen, we're redeemed, we're set apart for God's glory. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, why? Unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. Not that we should ignore them, not that we should put them as posters on a wall and say, that looks nice. No, that we should walk in them. That means living them out. Let us be found faithful, yea, even zealous servants for Christ, beloved. Let there be no doubt among those with whom we associate that we are Lord's people. Finally, Paul ends the chapter with verse 15 with an exhortation to Titus. Let me read it again. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Don't hold back, he's saying. It's similar to his words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2 where he said, preach the word, be in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. To know the truth is good and to believe the truth is better, but we must also proclaim the truth. This is the charge not only to Titus and Timothy, not only to all elders, but to each believer who love the Lord Jesus Christ and who, is their, who, who they look to as their Savior. And of course, it's the primary duty of ministers to exhort and rebuke all men with the authority of Christ. Basically, though, Paul is echoing his words at the beginning of the chapter. He wants Titus and us to be faithful to our calling, to not give any man an occasion to despise him by his being inconsistent in his walk. So, in conclusion, let's heed these admonitions that Paul has given to us, whether we're older men, older women, young men, young women, let us be faithful servants of Christ, zealous for good works, that we might adorn the doctrine of our Savior. Let's live soberly, righteously, godly in this present age with our eyes of faith looking for the blessed hope of our Savior to return. Let's close in prayer.